Danny and Katie. Thank you so much for your support. Enjoy ad-free listens and a number of episodes that we recorded when we first started Crime Salad. Not to mention our first bonus episode very soon. Yeah. Now, some of those episodes on there are pretty old. Honestly, it's pretty cool to see our growth from then to now. Yeah, it is. So we have that in our little library you guys can check out. And as always, we would like to place a content warning. This episode, as well as all of our episodes, are for mature audiences only. Listener discretion advised. You've been advised. All right, let's go. On May 12, 2018, 34-year-old Jolene Cummings, a hairstylist at Tangle Salon in Fernandia Beach, Florida, was getting ready to leave work for the day and lock up the salon. She told her coworker Jennifer Seibert that she was heading home for a quiet evening. At the time, Jolene was going through a contentious divorce and custody battle with her soon-to-be ex-husband, Jason Cummings. And so, as a result, she was looking forward to some alone time that evening. The next day was Mother's Day, and it was also Jolene's 34th birthday. She had plans to meet up with her ex, Jason, to pick up their three children and then spend the day celebrating with family and friends. Her children at the time were 10, 4, and 3. And according to friends, they were Jolene's whole life. But Jason immediately became concerned when Jolene never showed up. He drove their children over to Jolene's mother's house and then spent the day driving around looking for her or her missing 2006 beige Ford Expedition. The next day on May 14th, when they still hadn't heard from her, Jolene's mother, Ann Johnson, reported her daughter missing. It was determined that the last time that anyone had seen Jolene was the day prior when she left work. So police began their investigation at Tangle Salon and they were hoping to speak to a coworker of hers that was working with Jolene the night she went missing. This individual goes by the name Jennifer Seibert. Detectives left her several messages on her cell phone before she finally called them back. And when she did call them back, she immediately began talking about her ex-boyfriend who was a cybersecurity specialist. She said he had been stalking her for years, and if the officer included her name in any police report, he would immediately be able to hack the report and find out where she was living. She begged him not to release her name to the public or put her name in any police reports. Sounds pretty serious. And then she told them that during Jolene's last shift, she acted normal and had not mentioned having any plans for the weekend. It appeared as if Jennifer Seibert was scared, but this interaction with Jennifer seemed like a dead end. Immediately following Jolene's disappearance, the police were made aware of an incident that happened three days prior. It was May 9th, 2018, and Jolene and her ex-boyfriend, Jason Gee, were involved in a domestic disturbance when the police were called after the neighbors heard screaming and shouting. I just want to point out that, yes, this is a different Jason with the last name Guy, not to be confused with the ex-husband, Jason Cummings, who she was soon to be divorced with. 
According to the police report, Jason Gee became angry when she told him he wasn't welcome to stay at her home. He had damaged some kitchen cabinet doors and had an outstanding warrant for a prior domestic disturbance. As police arrived, he fled into the woods behind Jolene's home to avoid being arrested. Police took the report and told Jolene to call them back if he returned to her home. Because Jason had an outstanding warrant, police were able to have him quickly picked up and arrested. During his police interview, he was cooperative and told Detective Kelly that they could download and track his phone location and offered up a solid alibi. He also explained that the reason he ran on the night of the 9th was to avoid being arrested. His phone did show his location for the period that Jolene went missing, and it also showed that he had left her several messages trying to get a hold of her. Investigators also brought in Jolene's estranged husband for an interview. At first, he stated he believed she was on a bender. However, he was just as quickly worried about her and spent days driving around with family and friends trying to find her. He also had a solid alibi for the time in question. Next, the sheriff's office had released a missing person flyer for Jolene asking for the public's help in finding her. On the flyer, they included a photo of her missing SUV. And then, just as their best two suspects, Jason Gee and Jason Cummings, were cleared, police were notified that Jolene's car had been found in a Home Depot parking lot. Police canvassed the area and requested surveillance video from the local area businesses. In the meantime, the Tangles Salon, which had been closed on Sunday and Monday, were finally opened for business. On May 14, 2018, police were able to get a look inside the last known place Jolene was seen alive. And what they found inside was shocking and disturbing. It led police to conclude that a violent struggle had taken place inside the salon. A drawer at the reception desk was broken and laying on top of the desk. There appeared to be bloodstains around the reception area and on the desktop calendar and chair. There were numerous bloodstains on the cabinets and in the back room of the salon. There were also bloodstains on the walls, chairs, and portions of the ceiling. Luminol, which is a chemical compound often used by investigators to reveal traces of blood or blood cleanup, depicted a massive cleanup effort. One of the employees also noticed that a potted plant next to the reception area had been replaced with a similar but different plant. It appeared to police that there was a violent encounter that began in the back room and ended at the reception area as Jolene attempted to escape her attacker. They believed the front of the salon was where the attack came to a final and brutal end. This evidence didn't correspond at all with what they had been told during the phone call with Jolene's coworker, the one that was working with her the night she disappeared and the last known person to have seen her. Being that she didn't mention any attack happening, police wondered if perhaps Jolene came back to the salon for something and was then attacked by an intruder. So while police were inside the salon, Jennifer was outside in her car and noticed all of the police activity. She called her boss from her phone, and when her boss explained the police were collecting evidence and wanted to speak with her, she immediately quit her job and told her manager that she was leaving town. 
Jennifer was adamant about not involving herself in a police matter. But, I mean, wouldn't you want to help the police? After all, she was the last person to see Jolene. When police finally got the surveillance videos from the businesses surrounding the Home Depot, they spotted a familiar face. At 1.17 a.m. on March 13, 2018, a female in all black wearing black combat boots was seen exiting Jolene's SUV and heading towards the gate gas station. It was the only business in the shopping center that was opened at the time. The video surveillance at the gas station was high resolution, and it showed the same person dressed in all black wearing the same black combat boots walking through the front entrance of the gas station. The person in black briefly spoke to the gas station attendant inside and then purchased a bottle of water. It was paid for with a debit card in the name of Jennifer Seibert. The gas station attendant remembered Jennifer. He said she appeared agitated and afraid. He also noticed she had a large red mark on her face and some cuts on her hands. When he asked her about the injuries, she said she was out with her friends and an ex-boyfriend showed up and it wasn't good. They talked for a few minutes about meth use on the human body and the devastating effects. Jason told him she had researched meth use extensively and seemed to be implying her meth-addicted ex had attacked her. The clerk allowed Jennifer to use his personal cell phone to call a cab. A few minutes later, the surveillance video from the gas station showed Jennifer getting into a van and driving away. The clerk identified a DMV photo of Jennifer as the woman he saw that night and the same woman on the video. Next, police interviewed the cab driver, Stephen Schatz, and he told them that he picked up Jennifer from the gas station and drove her back to Anytime Fitness Shopping Center near Woody's Barbecue Restaurant. It was the same shopping center where the Tangles Hair Salon was located. He said he remembered this particular customer because Jennifer behaved oddly and was so unusually talkative. She was almost manic and seemed to control the conversation. She asked him a lot of questions about his personal life, religion, and God, and then she asked him for his phone number and invited herself to attend church with him. He dropped her off next to a small black SUV, which matched the description of Jennifer's Kia Soul. Police were eager to find out as much as they could about Jennifer, and what they found out only deepened the mystery. As police were digging for more information on Jennifer Seibert, their findings became more and more of a mystery. She had been using a stolen social security number and had provided a fake address on her employment application. In fact, they discovered that most of the time, Jennifer liked to live out of her car, occasionally renting rooms. Detective Rose conducted a law enforcement-only database search on Jennifer Marie Seibert. He discovered that Jennifer was born on September 5, 1974, and died on June 13, 1987, at the age of 12. She died in a car accident in Germany when her family was stationed overseas. She was buried in a cemetery located in Butler, Pennsylvania. Police were forced to contact the father of the real Jennifer Seibert and confirmed through photos that Jennifer was not anyone related or known to him. That's when they discovered that the person going by Jennifer Seibert and now the missing co-worker Jolene didn't really get along. 
Jennifer had only been working at the salon for a few weeks, but her odd behavior had Jolene questioning Jennifer's identity. Jennifer had a habit of eavesdropping on conversations and was caught several times by Jolene trying to listen in. She told one coworker that there was something a little off about Jennifer, and she believed she was trying to hide something. She thought Jennifer could possibly have a criminal record. In the day of Jolene's disappearance, she threatened to do a search on Jennifer and find out exactly what it is she was hiding. One of Jolene's co-workers, Anne Morgan, was able to provide a little more insight into the relationship between Jolene and Jennifer. The two women had gotten into a verbal argument when Jolene told Jennifer that she didn't believe she was who she purported herself to be and stated clearly that she didn't trust her and intended to find out her true identity. She reportedly told Anne that something was very off with Jennifer and not to trust her or turn her back on her. Those would turn out to be prophetic words. It was at this point in the investigation when the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, commonly known as the FDLE, knew they were no longer looking for a missing person. With what was picked up so far by police, they were now investigating a homicide and were now looking for Jolene's body. They also officially named Jennifer Marie Seibert as their person of interest. Ann Johnson, Jolie's mother, posted a series of heartbreaking Facebook messages following the change in investigation tactics. In one, she said, Today was one of the worst days of my life. My daughter has been missing nine days, and today I was informed that my daughter may no longer be alive. My faith is strong, and God has performed miracles before. Regardless, my beautiful daughter will be brought back home. In another post, she stated, Prayers are being heard. Tonight on the way home from the vigil, my son and I saw the brightest star in a pitch black sky. There was only one star and it followed us home. I know it was Jolene. You are my star shining brightest on the darkest night. Her brother and I felt her presence. Have no fear. We will not rest until she's brought home to her family and her children. We are being tested, but faith will not be lost. Thank you to everyone that came out tonight. It was a witness of love in our community. Now please bring Jolene home. We love each of you. Please keep my family in your prayers. Using cell phone data, police were able to track down the woman calling herself Jennifer Seibert to a rest stop off Interstate 95 in St. John's County. There, they observed Jennifer's 2016 black Kia Soul with darkened windows. There was no way to see inside the vehicle from the back or the side windows. However, from the front of the vehicle, they could see there was someone sleeping in the rear hatch area. As Jennifer was placed in handcuffs, police noticed her hands and face were covered in band-aids. They also noticed a large gouge taken out of her cheek under her left eye. It looked consistent with a deep fingernail scratch. Jennifer was placed under arrest and told she was being charged with the grand theft of Jolene's car. When they asked about the scratches on her face, she told them that she ran into a tree limb while riding her bicycle. When they asked Jennifer if her handcuffs were too tight, she told them they were fine. And then she told them that they could make them tighter if they wanted to have some fun and were into that type of thing. 
In the stunned silence, she was the only one laughing. After her arrest, she told investigators that technology made it difficult to continue hiding her true identity. She stated that they probably already knew who she was based on her fingerprints and that she wasn't Jennifer Cyber. She volunteered without any prompting that her real name was Kimberly Kessler and she preferred to be called Kim. She told them that she was born on May 9th, 1968, and they could confirm it if they liked. She told Detective Beasley that she used several aliases over the past 25 years, and under one of them, she had a son named Evan, who was now an adult. She said that when he was a baby, Child Protective Services removed him from her care. As a result, she went into their offices with a loaded gun and demanded they give Evan back to her. She admitted that she had also stabbed the father of the baby in the chest, had bitten the baby's grandfather, and committed some other petty crimes. Investigators began with a friendly approach to make her comfortable and asked her questions about her relationship with Jolene. She told them that Jolene was a very private person. However, she did hear Jolene talk about her ex-husband calling Child Protective Services on her. She stated that Jolene believed he only wanted custody of their children to avoid paying child support. She also told them she had found a small baggie of meth near the back door and implied she believed it belonged to Jolene. When investigators let her know about the mountain of evidence against her, she was suddenly no longer very talkative. Um, is she ever allowed to use your car? Are you allowed to use her car? Do you ever go anywhere together like that? No. But you asked me when I before an answer before. Ah, uh, okay. I was, That's know, all right. There's video of you dropping her car off at the Home Depot parking lot there in Yulee and walking across and going into the uh, gate. gate station and getting a taxi cab back down to, uh, they had it listed as Dick's Wings, but it was back down there to where Tangles is, okay? And that's why you're, you, you know, you're charged with a grand theft audit. Mm -hmm. And I'm not trying to trick you. I'm not trying to fool you. You're opening up to me and I'm opening up to you, okay? Mm -hmm. That's the reason you're charged with that. You're not charged with anything else, okay? Um, but something happened to Jolene. And, you know, we actually sent our, sent our crime team unit out to process um, tangles. And there was some evidence there, okay. We have also, and, and I don't want you to think I've been fooling you out, you know, I just want to talk to you and get to know you a little bit because I think something, what's your name? Something that you didn't plan happened, but let me tell you what, what we did, okay? Because I just want to be honest with you because I think something bad happened that you didn't intend to happen, but, um, we have, you know, taking a look at your car, and we actually, and we, we went out and um, uh, went to your storage unit on the island, and we did that all on a legal basis. We had search warrants for them all, okay. Um, we've got the, the video of you at the, when you go in and buy the bottle of water, you bought it on your credit card. Uh, you paid for the, uh, for the cab on your credit card. Uh, you used the clerk's phone to make the phone call to the, car, to the cab company. Um, we also have recovered your shoes that has Jolene's blood on your shoes. So I just want you to, if something happened that you didn't intend to happen, I want to talk to you about it. 
I don't think you're an evil person. I don't think you're a mean person. I think you have done one hell of a job getting through the last 25 years. Um, so let shoes. me reply this way, and you may not like the answer. I would like legal counsel. It was at that moment that Kessler knew the walls were closing in on her. In the short time that she had been on the run, they served a warrant on her storage unit and found items, including shoes that had Jolene's blood on them. There were also trace amounts of Jolene's blood in Kessler's car and fingerprints from Kessler in Jolene's SUV. They also found Kessler's haircutting scissors in her car, which were later determined to be covered in Jolene's blood, from the blade all the way up to the handle. And in Kessler's car, they also found a receipt from the day of Jolene's disappearance. The receipt was for zip ties, large sturdy contractor-grade garbage bags, and an electric carving knife. There was also video footage of Kessler buying these items. Kessler wasn't talking. However, her fellow inmates had plenty to say. Many of them said she was odd, tried to eavesdrop on their conversations, and constantly carried around her Bible. She refused to eat and gave all of her meals away. She told a few of them she had been on the run for 25 years, and she confirmed her real name was Kimberly Kessler. She told other inmates she would be going to federal prison for crimes related to drugs that she committed in Virginia Beach. She told several other inmates that her mother was into voodoo and witchcraft and would sell her to other men. None of this turned out to be true. But what police found to be true was Kessler hadn't been seen since July 4th, 2004, and was reported a missing person. But it wasn't until eight years later when her mother finally got around to officially reporting her missing. At the time of her disappearance, she was 35 years old, five foot five inches tall, and around 130 to 140 pounds. Her missing person flyer at the time said she also went by the name of Pamela Kleber or Pamela Kleiber. It said she disappeared under suspicious circumstances. So now with two additional names, she now has four names that she goes by, and it gets even more interesting. Police learned that Kessler found Jennifer Seibert's grave in the Northside Cemetery in Butler, Pennsylvania, where she grew up. It was one of the many stolen identities she used while she was missing. Kessler was known to roam around cemeteries looking for identities to assume. According to the Pennsylvania District Attorney in an interview he gave to ABC News, he thought Kimberly Kessler was just a ghost in the wind trolling cemeteries and looking for the dead and forgotten, and waiting to assume their lives on paper like a parasite. Hi, this is Daniel Roof, the Real GM Radio Podcast. It's a Texas showdown. The postseason and Bet Online is your number one source for all your baseball wagering information, up to the minute stats, news, scores, and matchup breakdowns. Everything you need to stay up to speed on each league championship series and through the World Series. Don't forget, Bet Online is where you have the latest game odds, present totals for the NFL and college football, plus real time updates on statistics, news, and odds. Serious up betting on football. So head to the website today or use your mobile device to get in on the action at Bet Online, where the game starts. 
On July 7, 2018, based on evidence gathered at the salon and in surrounding surveillance footage, the sheriff's office, in conjunction with the FBI, began a search of the Chesser Island landfill in the neighboring state of Georgia. Some of the surveillance footage depicted Kessler dumping trash bags in the dumpsters behind the Tangle Salon, as well as a large tote and a potted plant that she dragged out to a wooded area behind the salon. There, police also found women's shoes with blood on them. And later, the potted plant was determined to be the plant Kessler had replaced from the salon reception area because the leaves were splashed with Jolene's blood. Her body was never recovered from the landfill. However, they did recover several items of evidence to be used later in Kessler's trial. On September 7, 2018, Kimberly Kessler was officially indicted for Jolene's murder. In a press conference, County Sheriff Bill Leeper stated that, We are not quite sure yet why all the disguises or if Kessler has been involved in the disappearance of anyone else before, but it seems she is definitely running from something. As we continue to gather more and more evidence and facts, we have learned this case is a very unusual one that I am not sure we have ever seen in Nassau County before. I will say this, when we do provide all the details, I believe our community will be shocked. Police searched over 40 acres of land, utilizing volunteers, ATVs, cadaver dogs, and horses as temperatures were climbing over 100 degrees. With this huge effort to search for Jolene's body, they came up with nothing. After Kessler's identity became known, there was a lot more information available about her past. It was determined she had used at least 25 different aliases in over 30 cities across a dozen different states. She had worked as a stripper, a waitress, a hairstylist, a truck driver, a temp agency worker, Friends who knew her back in Pennsylvania also had stories about her temper. One of Kessler's former landlords had come forward too. He said she was very strange and eccentric and didn't own any furniture. When he offered her some free furniture, she declined, stating that she liked to live and travel light in case she needed to suddenly leave. She told him she was on the run from an ex-boyfriend who was a cybersecurity expert and could find her anywhere. She explained it was why she could only rent places where she wasn't required to place utilities in her name. He said she was highly paranoid and exhibited signs of what he described as schizophrenia. He stated she would hear sounds and voices both inside and outside her apartment and would regularly call the police, believing it was her landlord. In an interview, he stated she was very articulate and high-functioning and was easily found believable in small doses. Another friend of Kessler's recounted a story about her brother. In the story, Kessler had allegedly become angry with him and told him she would get back at him when he least expected it. And this happened while he was sleeping. She took a baseball bat to his face and knocked out his front teeth. She would also tell various co-workers throughout the years that CPS was a front for a satanic cult of pedophiles that could be traced all the way back to George Bush. She also told people that CPS had stolen her son and she was on the run from them. Another man from Texas had told authorities that he had met Kessler online through Facebook and out of the blue, she drove to Texas to be with him and she proposed. 
He said he needed time to think about the proposal to buy himself some space. And while he was deciding, she had taken his cat. When he asked for his cat back, she told him she had shot it. When he declined her proposal, she began harassing him online until he had to block her and close several of his social media accounts. So just in the eight hours following Jolene's disappearance, she conducted numerous searches from her phone. She searched for Jolene's name, plus the name of the salon, Tangle Salon, over 300 times. Mind you, this was 24 hours before anyone even knew Jolene had gone missing. She also did a search for female serial killers and crimes where a body was never found. Her search history on other subjects was equally bizarre. She was extremely interested in how to clean up meth labs and the effects of meth on the human body. She also searched how to be homeless in the United States and the best cities for homelessness. Several of Kessler's classmates spoke with law enforcement and they all consistently described a girl who was one day normal and then over summer break, she came back a completely different person. One friend said, quote, I mean, she was literally smoking hot back in the day. And uh, I just think people sense that she could just like she could just go off the wall at any moment, end quote. An ex-boyfriend of Kessler's from high school, upon hearing she was charged with murder, stated, quote, Yeah, I'm not surprised. She would often appear to be kind and then just snap if triggered, end quote. He also stated she'd like to go to the cemetery to visit her father's grave. However, instead of visiting with her father, she would instead look around for girls around her age who had died. Another friend said, quote, Everybody was afraid of her. I tried to stay off of Kim's radar because, quite honestly, she was a scary individual once she had her major change in personality one summer, end quote. Now, Kessler's mother, Constance, also came forward, and she described her daughter as kind, loving, and the best friend anyone could hope to have. Surprisingly, she said that her daughter loved animals, and people should be judged by their love for animals. And the cat that she allegedly shot begs to differ. Constance explained to the press that all of Kimberly's problems began when her son Evan was taken from her by Evan's father with the help of CPS. According to Constance, Evan's father had told her that their son had died when he was 15 months old while he was in foster care. He allegedly blamed Kessler for Evan's death since she is the one who got him taken away by CPS. And according to Kessler's mother, this is what forced her to use an assumed identity so she could go back to Virginia without interference from police while she searched cemeteries for his burial place. She wasn't sure if he was telling her the truth, so she also planned to look for her son if she couldn't find his grave. Evan's father disputed all of this. He stated he never told Kessler that Evan was dead, but he did get full custody of their son, which enraged Kessler. On July 7, 2019, a judge ruled that Kessler wasn't competent to stand trial after an ordered mental evaluation. Prosecutors disputed Kessler's mental incompetency ruling, stating that they disagreed with the defense experts' findings. However, their arguments fell on deaf ears as the psychologist chosen by the state also found Kessler incompetent to stand trial. As a result of this finding, she was committed to the custody of Department of Children and Families, which sent her to Florida State Hospital in Chattahoochee to restore competency. 
the judge requested that she be re-evaluated every six months. At that time, Kessler had stopped eating, and despite being almost 200 pounds when she was first arrested, she was now under 90 pounds, with some reports that she was as low as 74 pounds. That is when the sheriff's department sought an order to have her force-fed. Sheriff Leeper filed a suit asking for permission to have her placed on a feeding tube because he believed she was trying to kill herself by starvation. However, Kessler subsequently began eating on her own, and the suit was later dismissed. On one of her subsequent reevaluation hearings, she was brought into the hearing strapped to a wheelchair and repeatedly yelled, Jordan Beard is Jolene Cummings' cousin. Jordan Beard was Kessler's public defender, and that wasn't the first time, nor would it be the last time she had accused someone allegedly on her side of being a plant by the prosecution. In October 2020, Kessler told the judge during a court hearing that she wanted her public defender replaced because she believed he was related to Jolene and was conspiring against her. She stated that she had heard Jolene mention her cousin's name while the two worked at the Tangle Salon. She demanded a new attorney, however, her request was denied. The public defender also denied to the court that he was related to the victim's family. This was just more proof of Kessler's incompetency. At another competency hearing, the judge heard disturbing evidence from several of the correction officers assigned to Kessler's care while in jail. They testified that Kessler would take off all of her clothing, smear feces on the cell walls and door, and would make crude and vulgar remarks. She told a different correctional officer that her mother was a Satanist who beat her as a child, and it was Satan who forced her to do what she did. The judge also heard testimony that Kessler may have been malingering, which, according to Healthline.com, is when someone pretends to have a physical or psychological condition in order to gain or avoid something. He also heard that she was quite manipulative and mostly reads her Bible and uses the contents against her fellow inmates. According to phone calls with her mother, which were recorded, Kessler enjoyed being in solitary confinement and would often make threats of suicide so they would have to place her there. She told her mother that the jailers didn't realize it was like being in heaven to her. Sometimes Kessler would demand to be placed in the general population so the other inmates could kill her. Knowing these kinds of statements would land her back in solitary confinement on suicide watch. And another deputy said that Kessler was looking for a loophole in the Bible so that she could commit suicide and still go to heaven. During another one of Kessler's competency hearings, Dr. Lewis Legum, one of her treating psychologists, stated he believed that Kessler was suffering from multiple overlapping disorders, including a delusional disorder and a personality disorder. The personality disorder traits she exhibited included borderline narcissistic and histrionic. Histrionic means acting overly dramatic to seek attention. He stated that people who suffer from a delusional disorder can carry on jobs, live on their own, and appear competent and normal. However, a switch can flip at a moment's notice, which can cause them to be untethered and separated from reality. 
And then, after a third mental evaluation, a judge ordered on June 30th, 2021, that Kessler was competent to stand trial. That was after Dr. Graham Danzer with the Florida State Hospital administered several tests on Kessler. Based on the results, he believed she was competent to stand trial and could meaningfully participate in her own defense. However, at the same hearing, Kessler was yelling and screaming profanities at the judge until she was removed from the courtroom. Regardless, she was finally fit to stand trial. During one of the court Zoom competency hearings, Kessler would have outburst where she demanded new counsel. She also made claims that the Illuminati were watching her and framing her for murder. The judge had her microphone muted, which enraged her so much, she took off her clothing and smeared feces on the window. She was trying her best to be found incompetent to stand trial. Dr. Danzer would later testify that someone who thought Hitler was pumping in poison gas to their jail cell could still be found competent based on whether they believed what they said was true or not. He stated that he observed Kessler often making statements for shock value to get a reaction and not because she believed them. He also stated that while she was at the Florida State Hospital, she was still able to complain advocate for herself, and even managed to call state authorities and file complaints of abuse against the hospital, all of which were determined to be unfounded and not serious in nature. It was noted that at the time of Jolene's murder, Kessler was able to maintain steady employment, obtain a license, use a credit card for items to clean up the murder, had the presence of mind to cover up the murder by hiding Jolene's car, calling a cab, and going on the run. All of these deliberate actions took presence of mind in a level of competency and understanding of the gravity of her situation. On November 29, 2021, jury selection began in Kessler's trial. However, despite being found competent, she was repeatedly uncontrollable and would have sudden outbursts, including her repeated chanting that Jordan Beard is Jolene's cousin. Her trial began on December 7th, and for the majority of her trial, she was strapped into a wheelchair and rolled in and out of the courtroom based on her disruptive behavior. She would often state, I refuse unjust counsel, and her favorite line, Jordan Beard is Jolene's cousin. She would also accuse the judge of silencing her for years when he had her ruled out of the courtroom. Other times, she quietly stared out the window as if she had no interest in what was going on around her. During closing arguments, the prosecution alleged that Kessler may have wanted Jolene's clients and had called her a meth addict, which was something she appeared to be fixated on. The prosecution believed that Kessler stabbed Jolene in an unprovoked blitz attack with her scissors and then cut her up with an electric knife. They believed that Kessler hid Jolene's body parts in various dumpsters throughout the shopping center. During the defense closing arguments, they stated the prosecution had only proved that a fight had taken place, which they alleged could have been self-defense. They told the jury that there was no evidence of premeditation. And then on December 9th, 2021, the jury deliberated for a little over an hour. They found Kessler guilty of first-degree murder in the death of Jolene Jensen Cummings. The judge told Kessler she was entitled to be present during the reading of the verdict. However, she said, no, thank you, and refused to be present while the verdict was read. 
Kessler was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Kessler had previously been charged with battery against two law enforcement officers for attacking them with feces she had saved in a cup. She also began spreading the feces all over her body, which caused the officers to pepper spray her. Upon her conviction, those charges were dropped. Sheriff Lieber estimated the cost of Kessler's care, including round-the-clock supervision, while she was on suicide watch, cost the county over $200,000. On the day she was transferred to prison, the sheriff's office celebrated with cake and ice cream. On the cake, they had written, Incarceration, Relocation, Celebration. For Jolene's family, their nightmare continues and their grief is unending. During Kessler's sentencing hearing, her mother, Ann Johnson, told the court, quote, When my precious daughter was murdered, part of us died. Our family had struggled to make some sort of semblance of life ever since. We are still waiting for Jolene to walk through the door, but Jolene is never coming home. Not only are we traumatized, but this is a never-ending nightmare, end quote. Then Ann Johnson spoke to Kessler directly. She stated, quote, If you could find it in your heart to tell us where the remains of my daughter are, give us some closure. I am asking you from one mother to another, end quote. She never got that answer, and the family is still waiting to bring Jolene home. On February 22, 2022, a public defender on behalf of Kimberly Kessler filed a notice of appeal in her case. They had previously filed a notice for a new trial, which was denied. That appeal is due to be filed later this year. And this completes this week's episode. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode. We will see you next week. Crime Salad is a Weird Salad production. Are you kidding me? That was perfect. Hi, this is Daniel Rue the Real GM Radio Podcast. It's a Texas showdown in the postseason, and BetOnline is your number one source for all your baseball wagering information with up-to-the-minute stats, news, scores, and matchup breakdowns. BetOnline has everything you need to stay up to speed on each league championship series all the way through the World Series. And don't forget, BetOnline is where you get the latest game odds, spreads, and totals for the NFL and college football right at your fingertips. BetOnline has real-time updates on statistics, news, and odds. We're serious up betting on football. Head to the website today or use your mobile device to get in on the action at Bet Online, where the game starts. On a summer night, Douglas Wagg Jr. lay motionless across a strip of railroad tracks before being struck by an oncoming train. I'm investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra, and my investigation into exactly how Doug died took me into the depths of a bizarre mystery. It was really hard to understand what was fact and what wasn't. A mystery that has led me from one suspicious death to another. Listen to CounterClock now, wherever you listen to podcasts.